Amen. You can be seated. Preschoolers, you guys can make your way out to your class. Y'all can head out. Your teacher should be there. If you're staying in the room, I want to invite you to take out a copy of God's Word. Please pull out your Bibles. Turn with me to the letter to the Hebrews, as we have it here. It's toward the end of the New Testament. You'll find it there. If you can't find it quickly, no shame and a little table of contents work. That's what it's there for. So uh, let's find our way to Hebrews. Don't have a Bible? That's okay. Your neighbor probably does. If they don't have one, you have a phone, I'm sure. It probably has a Bible. If not, it should be on the screens behind it, but don't rely on that. We want uh, God's Word in front of us as we begin today. We're starting a new sermon series. Typically, after we've been in a New Testament book, we switch and we go to an Old Testament book. We were in Job, we were in the Old Testament, and then we switched and we went to Titus. And we walked all the way through Titus verse by verse. And since we finished Titus, we were in Advent, which doesn't really count in that rotation. We should be in which Testament now? We were in Titus. Old. Should be in the Old Testament now. We're not. We're in Hebrews. We're breaking the rules. But not really, because Hebrews sort of functions as both. You sort of get the Old Testament and the New Testament all wrapped into one, which is what makes it a phenomenal and challenging, yet very encouraging letter. We're going to be walking through it over the next 20 weeks. Strap in, all right? 20 weeks in Hebrews. And by the way, that's the fastest we could possibly do it. There's no way we could do it justice and do it any faster than that. But 20 weeks, it'll take us all the way to the end of May. Uh, We're going to take one break, and that one break is Easter Sunday. So even on Palm Sunday, it's going to be somewhere in Hebrews 9. Uh, But yeah, 20 weeks in Hebrews, this will be the first half of the year for us in this great book. Now, one of my favorite stories is C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, the whole thing. Like, you know, I know we've got all kinds of different stories in it, but I I love the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, We all have our favorite books, and for me, my favorite book in that series, it changes. It's probably always going to be The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but I don't know. We read Prince Caspian with the boys, and they absolutely loved it. And I think recently they watched the movie over Christmas break, and just they love Prince Caspian. Uh, There's a scene in Prince Caspian that beautifully communicates what the book of Hebrews accomplishes. This is what we read from Prince Caspian and C.S. Lewis. A circle of grass, smooth as a lawn, met her eyes, with dark trees dancing all around it. And then, oh joy, for he was there. The huge lion, shining white in the moonlight, with his huge black shadow underneath him. But for all the movement of his tail, he might have been a stone lion. But Lucy never thought of that. She never stopped to think whether he was a friendly lion or not. She rushed to him. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment. And the next thing she knew was that she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan sobbed Lucy. At last, the great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her. She gazed up into the large wise face. Welcome, child, he said. 
Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I'm not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. That's my hope for our study of Hebrews. That the longer we journey, the longer we walk through this book, the longer we see Jesus, the more clearly we see him, the more clearly we understand him, the bigger he will appear to us. Now, I know some of you uh, may have made some New Year's resolutions, and you may be just hot on fire for reading the Bible and praying and coming to church, and you just feel like you're in a really good spot spiritually, and I hope that's the case. I hope that for every single one of us. I hope it, you know, is true of myself. But I'm a realist, and I also know that that's not all of us. Maybe some of us are starting this new year in a rut, a spiritual rut. It's cold outside. It gets dark around 2 o'clock, it seems. It's just, you know, family stress, work stress. Just got through the holidays. You just are exhausted already. You're sick. Your kids are sick. Your kids' friends are sick. School's starting back. Life's not going how you want. Your pastor preaches long sermons. You're already hungry. Lunch can't come quick enough. You don't want to read your Bible. You don't feel like praying. You don't feel like coming to church. Maybe you're entering this year weak and stumbling in your faith. Maybe you once, you know, once upon a time, you had a strong and vibrant faith, but it's so far behind you that you can barely remember what it was like. If you are in a spiritual rut, the book of Hebrews is waiting for you. The answer this year to your spiritual rut is found in this book. You see, the book of Hebrews was written by an unknown author. Unknown, we don't know. A lot of people have guesses. Some people say Paul is probably someone in Paul's circle, but we just don't know. There's no way for us to to know with 100% certainty who wrote this letter. It was written to Jewish Christians. We're not even entirely sure where they were located. You know, some would say in Palestine, some would say in Rome, and they're, you know, good arguments that could be given, but we're not entirely sure. But what we do know is that it was most likely written to Jewish Christians who were definitely on the verge of giving up their faith. The road had become too difficult. Persecution had already come for them, and more persecution was coming. Their faith had grown too weary. And so with the tone of a loving pastor, Hebrews, by the way, it's called a letter. It functions more like a sermon. This author writes to help these weary believers. And his main point the, the one thing that he wanted them to see more than anything else and what they needed more than anything else and what we need in entering a new year, especially if we feel ourselves in a rut, what we need more than anything else is not a list of things to try harder. What we need more than anything else is Jesus. And we need to be captivated by the simple idea that's communicated all the way through the book of Hebrews that Jesus is better. He's better. He's superior. And so Hebrews, from beginning to end, is all about the supremacy of Jesus over all things. We're going to learn how Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than the priesthood. He's, he's, uh, he represents a better covenant, a better way of life. It's all going to come out 
in this book. And then the author shows us how we should align our lives with that reality. So if your spiritual tank is on E, what you need more than anything else is more Jesus. And that's what we're going to give you over the next 20 weeks in walking through this book. Now, the book of Hebrews weaves together two approaches throughout the whole book. This is one reason why it's difficult to think that Paul wrote it, because Paul typically in his letters will give theological explanation, he will teach, and then he will do application at the end. This, this letter, this sermon essentially, weaves together uh, theological exposition, teaching, and application. So you'll find, first, the author will exalt the supremacy of Jesus. He will show us how he is better, and why he is better. And he will often be making arguments from the Old Testament. Tons of quotes from the Old Testament in this letter. It seems like every other verse is either an allusion to something in the Old Testament or a direct quote. But then second, his second approach is the author will warn us, will exhort us, will encourage us about how we should live in light of the supremacy of Jesus. And that's essentially, it won't be perfect, but essentially how this sermon series will work. We will one week behold the supremacy of Jesus over something. And then the next week, we will focus on the practical exhortations related to his supremacy over that thing. We begin this morning, though, with one of the greatest sentences ever written. One of the greatest sentences ever written. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, is one Greek sentence. It's one sentence. feels like a run-on. Now, the first three verses that we're going to look at today introduce us to themes that are going to unfold throughout the rest of the book. In order to show us and argue that Jesus is superior, that he is better, better than anyone or anything that we may be tempted to turn to, the author clarifies who Jesus is. He gives us this beautiful, this grand, overarching picture of Jesus, and that's all I want to do this morning. I want to clarify for you who Jesus is. No better way for us to start the year than to walk into it with clarity about who he is. A lot of ideas out there about who Jesus is. We need to be clear about it. Who is Jesus? Let's answer that in three ways. First, we're going to see that Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. Second, that he is the sovereign ruler of the universe. And third, that he is the sacrificial redeemer of humanity. Uh, We have notes. If you don't have them, too late. Don't go get them yet. Let's stay focused, stay locked in. You can pick them up on your way out. Um, But we do have these notes uh, prepared for you. First, Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. Now, this is the first description that we find of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. It's a foundational truth that the author uses eventually to make his case that Jesus is better than the angels. And we're going to get into that argument next week. Um, But this is what he says in the beginning. He says, long ago, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. There are a few things that we see here. First, we see that God chose to reveal himself. I want you to look and maybe underline if you underline. I don't underline in my Bible. I I don't think it's sinful or, or bad. I just don't do it. I usually journal off to the side. So what I would do is write it down. But I know Everyone's not perfect like me, so you may write in your Bible. A good idea would be to underline these two words, two words that you will definitely probably overlook. God spoke. God spoke. We take that truth for granted. We just assume it. We skip past it. 
those two words communicate the foundation of Christianity. Apart from those two words, everything else we believe, like, throw it out. It doesn't matter. We wouldn't have it without those two words. Christianity depends on God speaking. We don't believe that God is some hidden being out there just waiting to be discovered, and there were just these awesome people one day that just found him, you know, as if they were on this treasure hunt, and they just, they found God, and they found all this information about him. No, we are able to know God only because he chose to make himself known. God was not bound by necessity to reveal his nature or to reveal his will or his purposes of grace to any of us, but he chose to do so. We, we don't have some inerrant right to know God as he is, but God chose to reveal himself, and his self-revelation is a gift of grace. We can know God because God saw fit to make himself known. God spoke. He chose to reveal himself. But second, we learn more. God chose to reveal himself at many times and in many ways through the prophets. Now, God makes himself known in a couple big ways. We could separate them into a couple categories. First, there's something that we call general revelation. Now, this is God revealing himself through creation, his creative power, his genius, his, even to a certain degree, his attributes are discernible through the created order. You're able to look at the sky and just be in awe that someone made it. There's just something that comes about you and God can reveal himself in that way, in this general way that, wow, there's a powerful God out there somewhere. Um, it's Romans 1.20 communicates this. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So everyone everywhere is able to see something about God in creation. But, but there's another type of revelation that we talk about, another category, and it's called special revelation. So there's general revelation, creation, then there's special revelation, God's speech. So this is the specific way that God has chosen to reveal himself to his people. In general revelation, we, we can make good guesses about God's nature. In special revelation, God speaks with clarity about his nature, who he is. And so the author of Hebrews here is talking about special revelation. God revealed himself in many different ways. God spoke in all kinds of ways throughout the Old Testament, through all kinds of different means. Let's just think of a few examples. You have Moses. How did God speak to Moses? Anybody? What's the key example? The burning bush, right? The burning bush. We, I've never had a bush talk to me, you know. Um, it's never happened, and you know, if it, I don't think I would enter into a conversation with, with a bush and attribute it to God. This is what happened. God spoke to Moses in a burning bush. What's another example that we could give? So like Elijah, like he spoke to him, and what is that? What's that we, we talk about sometimes? And that still, small voice, you know? God spoke to him in that still, small voice. And what about Isaiah? God revealed himself to Isaiah, but it was in this glorious vision in the temple, and what about the time that God spoke through a donkey? You know, remember that? There's a story in, in Numbers you should check out sometime. That he revealed himself that way. God has chosen to reveal himself, and he's done it in all kinds of different ways, in all kinds of different times, through all kinds of different people. Um, but most specifically, he is talking about here, the author of Hebrews, that is, 
God's revelation of himself through the prophets. God revealed himself at many different times. He revealed himself to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He revealed himself through Moses and David. He revealed himself through prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. God's special self-revelation is found in every book of the Old Testament at many times over the course of thousands of years and in many ways through many different people, God has spoken. And these prophets, they function sort of like microphones do. The microphone doesn't listen to what I say and then interpret what I'm saying and then give its own message. No, the prophets, they didn't interpret what God was saying and then say it. There's this phrase that's found all over your Old Testament that is just, thus says the Lord. The prophets would say that. Here's the message from the Lord. And they would just declare what the Lord had said. God chose to reveal himself through the prophets, and he's done it over the course of history, many different times, many different methods, many different people. And this is leading up to this important contrast. Third, God ultimately, supremely, has revealed himself in Jesus. Now it's true, God revealed himself all throughout the people and times that we find in the Old Testament. And it's true revelation. It's not as if, you know, God falsely, you know, revealed himself. No, he, he did, but he has finally and he has ultimately revealed himself in the person of the Son. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The author, he's drawing this contrast. Not only between the prophets of old and Jesus, but in the former age and the new age that Jesus has inaugurated with his coming. He's essentially saying, before Jesus came, and in anticipation of his coming, God chose to reveal himself partially, in parts, in pieces, in all kinds of different people, in all kinds of different ways throughout uh, history. But something new and something final has come in Jesus. In Jesus, there is a kind of revelation from God unlike anything that came before it. You can think of a puzzle. Okay, you know, the, the big ones, the like 500, 1,000 piece puzzles. Some of you guys are, you know, psychopaths and you like that kind of stuff. You know, you love just the, the puzzle pieces everywhere and it just, ah, yes, I can put all this together. Stresses me out to no end. I mean, it stresses me out so much just to have a bunch of pieces there and trying to put them together. I, I'm just not for me. Uh, uh, puzzles, uh, Pokemon puzzles, you know. If we got Pokemon puzzles, that's cool. I can, I can work on those, uh, no problem. Uh, but the big ones, you know, the, the ones that take a lot of time, not for me. But if you think of one, um, puzzles, if, if what frustrates me about a puzzle is that you can work on it for hours. You come to the very end of it, and maybe this is just true in my house because we're, we're just a little wilder, but you come to the end of it, and there's one or two pieces that you just can't find, you know? And you've got the whole thing, whatever it is, you know? It's, it's some big, like, scene from Star Wars or whatever, and it's just looking so cool. How frustrating it is that you get to the very end, there's just, like, one missing piece. It's, ah, it's not that big of a deal. It's just we know where it was. We, we, that wasn't why we did the puzzle. Yeah, it was. That's why we did the puzzle, so we could have the complete picture, so we could see all of it. Now, the language used in verse 1 
indicates that God spoke in the past to our spiritual forefathers like Moses and David in pieces. And so it's, it, it's easy to think, okay, God's been revealing himself. He's been putting the puzzle together so that his people could see who he is. And over time, and in all kinds of different people, in all kinds of different ways, he's been revealing who he is. And now Jesus is the final piece to the puzzle. He's, and you put, you put it in, and now we know who God is. He's the final piece. We would grossly misunderstand what the author is saying if we think that Jesus is merely the final piece to the puzzle. As if he's just a part of the picture of who God is. Jesus, this is what the author of Hebrews is showing us. He doesn't merely complete the picture of God's self-revelation. He is the picture. Jesus is the picture. He's the puzzle. The completed puzzle. The final puzzle. He's the entire thing. This is what we read in verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is better than any prophet who came before him. He didn't just share a part of who God is. Jesus isn't just a messenger sent from God. He, he, you know, as many of the central figures of other religions are, just messengers sent from God. Jesus is God in the flesh, the complete And perfect nature of God is bound up in Jesus. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of his nature. That means when you see Jesus, or when you receive Jesus, you see God. He's the perfect, the ultimate, the supreme revelation of God. Don't do this, but if you were to look at the sun... Don't do it. I shouldn't have said that. Kids are going to go do it now. But if you look at the sun, tell me the difference between the sun itself and the light coming from it. Can you distinguish between the two? No, of course not. There's no way, there's no way to distinguish between, if you stare into a light bulb, is there a way to distinguish between the light and the, and the light bulb? No, it's too bright. There's no way. There's no way to distinguish the two. He is the radiance of God's glory in this way. You want to see God's glory? You look on the face of Jesus. This is what it means. He's the exact imprint of his nature. We have in Jesus the full and the final and the definitive revelation of God. If you want to know God, listen, you do not have to wait for a new message from him. If you want to know God as he is, you don't have to wait for him to speak to you in a dream. You don't have to wait for him to to give you some hidden message. He has perfectly and sufficiently revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus. Claims to new and fresh revelation from God should be rejected, not just because they're certainly false, but also because they belittle Jesus himself. No more revelation is needed. He is the final, the perfect, the complete revelation of God. Second thing that we see here about who Jesus is. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe. So he isn't just the ultimate revelation from God in the sense that when you see Jesus, you see God. He is also the ruler of of the universe. 
Jesus is both the ultimate prophet and the ultimate king. He doesn't just reveal God to us. He reigns as God with the authority of God over us. And this is what we find at the end of our passage. So if you look down to verse 3, uh, uh, yeah, verse 3, right in the middle of it, it says, after making purification for sins, it says that Jesus did something. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We, we confessed this earlier in our catechism. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high in heaven. He is seated at the place of honor. He sat down in authority over all things. If you look down just a little bit, we'll get to this uh, in a couple weeks. Um, Hebrews 2.8, it says, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. This is something we need to learn about Jesus. If you didn't know this already, he is not just God in the flesh. As God in the flesh, he has absolute, total authority over all things and all peoples from all times everywhere. Total, complete authority. And, you know, I just feel like that when people talk about Jesus and they think about him, it's, it's so theoretical. And, you know, you think about him in his state of humiliation and when he was on the earth and these are the things that he did. No, we should, you know, do what this guy said. He's a great example for us. And we should consider how we speak of Jesus. You don't understand. There is nothing... There is nothing left outside of his control. There's nothing outside the jurisdiction of Jesus. He has total authority. And there are three descriptions in this passage that help us see this. First, Jesus is described as the heir of all things. The heir of all things. Jesus is the divine son of God who possesses everything that belongs to his father. And what belongs to God? Everything. Everything belongs to Jesus. His inheritance is everything. All things belong to him. Colossians 1, we'll see this a couple times today. But it, it says that all things were created by him. But it also says that all things were created for him. Romans eleven thirty six. what we read this morning, earlier. For from him and through him and to him belong all things things. Everything exists under the authority of Jesus and for his glory. Every nation, every president, every ruler, every evil dictator in the world all exist under the authority of Jesus. Everything is under his feet, which means one day, you know, a lot of people talk about now like, well, you know, you need to make a decision. You need to make a decision right now whether Jesus is going to be Lord of your life or not. Is he going to be the Lord of your life or not? Can you do that? Can you enthrone him over your life? Or can you say, nah, no, nah, give me that crown back. No, you, you know, I'm going to be Lord of my life. You're not going to be Lord of my life. As if you could dictate that. Newsflash, we're not in control of, of that reality. He is the Lord of your life, period. The question is, will you submit to his lordship or not? That's the proper question. He is the heir of all things. Second, if that wasn't enough for you, Jesus, the God-man, the Jesus who actually walked on the earth, the Jesus that we just talked about during Advent, was born as a baby, is the creator of all things. This is what he says. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. But if you backed up 
it talked of him as being the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. So he radiates God's glory, his exact imprint of his nature, and he's the creator of all things. Back to that Colossians 1 passage. By him all things have been created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. All things were created by him. John 1, through him all things have been made. Without him nothing was made that was made. He's the creator of all things. But third, if that didn't blow your mind about who Jesus is, he is the heir of all things. Everything belongs to him. He's the creator of all things. Every single thing that has ever existed is due to the creative power of Jesus. But third, he's the sustainer of all things. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. I might have to start writing in my Bible. Okay, you can underline that phrase right there. He upholds the universe. That blows my mind. Circle it. Highlight it. How many things can you do? Reed was like, nah, I ain't touching this Bible. No way. It's unfathomable. He upholds the universe. Everything in the universe the furthest galaxy, your next breath, everything is sustained, upheld by Jesus. The entire world holds together because Jesus is holding it together. The only reason that we're still on the ground right now, gravity, but who upholds gravity? Jesus. He upholds the whole universe. Listen, do you realize who he is. Do you realize it? In all of our failures to trust him, in all of our failures to accurately depict him, in all of our failures to properly adore him, maybe we've just simply missed who he is. He is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the heir of all things. He is unlike anything or anyone else. You need to find comfort this morning in this overwhelming reality about Jesus. That he is your creator. That everything belongs to him. That he sustains the entire universe. But most specifically, he will uphold you. He will sustain you in whatever this year brings. All things belong to him, including You, you belong to him. Submit to this Jesus. See him for who he truly is. A couple things we can do in light of the reality of Jesus being our ruler. We can trust him as king. We can't always trust our human rulers, the leaders that we, we can't always trust them. We can always trust Jesus. He is better than any ruler you could ever imagine because he has more authority than any of them. Jesus has authority over every demon, over every disease, over every sin, over death itself. And this is the scary thing about entering a new year. We just, you know, it's true all the time, but we tend to think of it when the calendar switches and we start a new year. We don't know what's ahead of us. We don't know what the year will bring. That's unknown. What is not unknown 
is that no matter what we face, Jesus will meet us there as the authoritative ruler and king over our lives. He will, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, he will govern us, he will defend us, he will preserve us in the redemption obtained for us. So we can trust him. We can also and should also submit to him. Jesus does not need our permission. He does not need our cooperation to be who he is. He is the king, so he's the one who has the right to dictate how we should live and what we should treasure. Our submission to Jesus is not required for him to be king. But we must submit to him in order to come under his kingship with joy and gladness. Jesus is the ruler of the universe. One more thing to see here. Jesus is the sacrificial redeemer of humanity. So he's the supreme revelation, he's the sovereign ruler, and he is the sacrificial redeemer. And what we've learned so far about Jesus is connected to his nature, to his person. He is, by his nature, the revelation of God. We, we see it, we perceive God in Jesus. He is the ruler of the universe. That's who he is. But this final truth is more connected to the work of Jesus, what he did as the revelation of God and the ruler of the universe. Jesus is the redeemer of humanity. And this is what we find this little phrase little short phrase in verse 3. After making purification for sins. That's it. He made purification for sins. That's the central theme of Hebrews. If, they, if we had to pick one thing from the first few verses of Hebrews to say, hey, what's the rest of this book about? It's this one. That Jesus made purification for sins. Um, let's ask a few questions. Why do we need him to do that? How did he do it, and what does it mean? All right, first, why do we need Jesus to make purification for sins? Okay, a couple realities. First, by Jesus' very nature, we've already seen, he radiates the glory of God. Got to understand this. That's not who we are. By nature, our very nature, we do not radiate the glory of God. We repel the glory of God. We are all by nature impure. We are all by nature sinners. And that's not just, you know, a polite thing that you say, hey, man, I'm a sinner too. You know, it's not just a nice thing you say to somebody who's really messed up in a big way. You know, somebody really messes up and you're like, hey, man, don't even worry about it. I sin too. No, that's not what this is. That, this is true of you. This is by your very nature, you are a sinner. You are impure before a God who is not. And that reality is our deepest problem. Our impurity, our sinfulness, is what separates us from the God who makes himself known as holy. And to deepen the problem, we can't ascend the heavens and find a home with God. We can't merit our own forgiveness. We can't clean ourselves up. No matter what we do, we will remain impure. We can work our fingers to the bone. But there's nothing we can do to atone for our sins against a holy God. And in the book of Hebrews, there's an uncomfortable truth that you learn. Only the shedding of blood 
can atone for our sins. Only the shedding of blood can atone for our sins. Our sin is that serious because the glory of God that we've repelled is that great. That's what he actually says in Hebrews 9.22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The greatest news in the world is that Jesus is our Redeemer. That like a priest, he has come to make purification for sin. Now, second question, how did he do that? How? Our deepest problem, we're impure. We see good news. Jesus makes purification. He has made purification. There's a chance for you to be pure. How did he do that? How does that happen? If I can't make myself pure by being really good, how can someone else make me pure? Well, let's remember what a priest would do. What was the the job of a priest? A priest would go into the presence of God, go into the holy place in the temple or in the tabernacle. He would go into the presence of God representing the people. He's standing in as a representation of the people. And on their behalf, he would offer sacrifices. He would shed the blood of an animal, offer this sacrifice to the Lord to cover, to atone for the sins of the people. This is what Jesus does. He is a better priest. He he went, Jesus went into the presence of God and he made purification for sins by dying. This is why he's a better priest. Jesus did not offer the blood of an animal. He didn't offer the blood of another. He offered his own blood. He died to obtain our purification. Jesus, as our great high priest, doesn't bring a separate sacrifice to be repeated throughout the centuries. Jesus, as our great high priest, offers himself on the altar as the sacrifice. His own blood is shed. And as the the one who perfectly radiates the glory of God. He is a perfect sacrifice. The only one sufficient to atone for our sins. So purification is accomplished, is found in Jesus because he died for us. Now this truth about Jesus is the most surprising thing that we find in the first few verses of Hebrews. And it's the most joyful of them all. It's surprising because what we've learned so far about Jesus places him so far beyond us. We we can barely fathom his nature as God. I mean, it feels weak. All the things that I've just said, like I haven't done him justice. And we just read it here. And it's just words on a page. But he upholds the universe. He is the creator of all things. He's the heir of all things. He radiates the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He is so far beyond us. The author of Hebrews shows us that the Son, who is infinitely greater than us, infinitely far from us, came very close to us. Closer than anyone else would to redeem us from sin. This ultimate final revelation from God, the one who is the radiance of his glory, has taken all of our impurity, 
All of our sin, all of our impure thoughts and words, all of the things that we have not done, that we should have, all the things that we have done that we shouldn't have. He takes all of it upon himself. The radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his being, died in your place to obtain the purification of sin. Here's what this means. You can live before the face of God today with confidence. You can be certain, absolutely confident today of God's blessed presence with you. you it, notice, that's true, and it has nothing to do with you. It doesn't matter. You know, I don't, I don't think I know enough about the Bible. I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not this, I'm not that. You're, you're not what? It's worse than you say. You are impure. You are guilty before a holy God, and he has made purification. So draw near to the Lord. Come close, because he welcomes you with open arms. You can approach him and know that his welcome awaits you. This is an argument that he'll make later in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Approach him, draw near to him, dwell with him now and forevermore because Jesus has made it so. It does not depend on you and the level of intelligence or study or anything. It depends on him. His death in your place is sufficient. And finally, you can live in freedom. You can live in freedom. Jesus is sufficient in his person and by his work for your purification. Notice what he says. He has made. After making purification for sins. You know what that means? It's done. He's already done it. When he comes again, it will not be to die again. No more sacrifices to be made. He's already done it. He has already made purification for your sins. So stop walking in guilt. He took all of your sins on himself. He bore your guilt. He bore your shame. He bore all of your sin on himself to set you free. He has done everything necessary for you to be forgiven today. And he has done everything necessary for you to feel forgiven today. And free from the burden of guilt and sin over your life. And if you want that experience, the only thing that you must do is come empty-handed to the cross and cling to Jesus. Close with this word from Hebrews 9, 26-28. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. No matter what this year face, no matter what you face this year, you will be met 
by Jesus, who is the perfect revelation of God, who is the sovereign ruler of the universe in your life, and who has made perfect purification of sin. You can rest in him, you can walk in him, you can draw near to him with joy and gladness and hope.